I'm going to mention a couple of things that uh, I, I wasn't in here when Michael made the, uh, the announcements before. He may have mentioned one or two of these already, and if he did, just forgive me. But you'll have them reiterated, which is excellent for communication. One is that next week, of course, there is no class. Uh, instead, we're going to have a... We didn't know what to call it. In fact, for those of you who got an email about it, Hope sent out an email. She said, I don't know what to call this. I'm calling it a muffin fellowship or something. And I've decided we should call it a muffellowship. Huh? It's a, it's a new word. I think it works really, really well. No, it's terrible. It's awful. It's horrible. We're not going to call it that. I don't know what we're going to call it, but it's not going to be that. But anyway, we're having muffins next week in between the two services. And so please... Uh, Come and be part of that, but there will be no class. And then on March 6th, there's also going to be no class that day. There's going to be a special presentation regarding our finances and our budget for 2016. And so please be aware of that and be looking for that time coming as well, March 6th. And uh, that will be the last Sunday, by the way, that uh, Jonathan Straker will be here before he then leaves for about three or four weeks and then comes back again. He arrives two weeks from today on February 21st. We're not going to have him lead worship that day because he's going to get in, I think, fairly late on February 20th. We thought about it, but decided not to. And, uh, but he will be here to lead worship on the 28th and then on March 6th. And then he's going to go, go back to Japan, grab his family and come back here. And they will be, they're due to be back here on March 30th. We've been saying for quite a while that they're going to be here on March 28th, but as things turned out, it worked out best if he come on March 30th, and so he's going to come back that day and be here permanently. So we can anticipate that. And then I just wanted to mention that there is, in fact, a Friends Speak event today. If you're a Friends Speak reader or if you're a Friends Speak worker, uh, then this fellowship today is for you. We'd love to have you come and stay if you're part of Friends Speak. And I'm excited because the person with whom I've been working, my reader, who is from Vietnam, is going to be there today. So I'm excited about that. Well, I don't know if you're doing the, uh, the asking lessons material, if you're doing those readings or not. But if you are, then you probably, if you've been consistent about that, you've probably been, been reading the Bible more in the last month or so than what you've been doing for a long time. That's a good possibility. And we have really, excuse me, we have really pushed this whole notion of Bible reading and asking people to read the Word, get into the Word, be blessed by what God has to say through Scripture to us. And so I hope that you're doing that. I hope perhaps that you even move on. Maybe you're doing the chronological Bible with Kevin. You're going to do that after February anyway. But even if you don't, please continue to read the scriptures because it's so absolutely crucial. Well, it fits perfectly, this notion of reading the Bible together with what we've been doing since the beginning of 2016. And I'll just tell you that today, because these things are so important and because they're kind of so near and dear to my heart, like lately I've, I've noticed that I've been reading a manuscript when I preach, and it's because I've been so concerned about the things that I say. And today is certainly no different than that. Because these things are so important. And so I'm going to do some reading, in one sense, words from me today. But it's because I don't want there to be any questions about what I said. 
because these things are in fact so important. Today, our faith is at risk. That's the title of the series that we've been going through. And whether it's from the media or those who teach us in school or a workmate or the problems that we see in the world, our own burning questions and frustrations maybe, whatever it is, our faith seems to be challenged. And it comes from inside and it comes from outside. And one of the questions that people keep asking is, is he really there? Has he really revealed himself? Does he really say something to us? Or is all of this a figment of our imagination? Are there really good reasons to believe? Can the God that we talk about in Christianity be trusted? Or is God just the product of someone else's wishful thinking because we're afraid of evil or we're afraid of death or we're afraid of being alone or we're afraid of the future? Do I just think there is a God because there's some things I can't explain? Are there not such good challenges to the existence of God that it doesn't make sense anymore to believe? There's a lot of people asking that question today. I think that there's people in the audience right now who've asked that question. We may not want to admit it, but I think we ask that question. And are there not times when God, especially when we read the Bible, seems like such a bad character that I should stop believing in a God like that? After all, he murders at points tens of thousands of people. How do we answer those kinds of questions? And in fact, they're great questions. And almost all of us ask them. And they deserve great answers. And so we've been trying to deal with them for the last several weeks since the beginning of the year. And we're going to deal with a doozy today. One of the most important concepts associated with Christianity is that of revelation. Although there's not enough time to go into all of that this morning, if God had not revealed himself to human beings, we would be fairly ignorant of him. We would be, as it were, trying to see clearly in very dim light. Trying to see God, but just being unable to see him clearly. Trying to build an understanding of him based on hints that are left behind in creation or maybe even in ourselves as the image of God, but not really getting it. We'd have pretty incomplete knowledge. In fact, my opinion is that the spirituality that we see around us everywhere often amounts to the attempts that people make to respond to these hints. And so I think that the religions we see around the world, and there are some people who might even be sitting here today who would think, oh, I wish he wouldn't say things like this. I really think that the truth lies in Christianity. I really think that God has revealed himself specifically in the person of Jesus Christ and in his history with the Jews. And I don't think that he reveals himself in all the other religious faiths. In fact, I would say that those are, by and large, attempts by human beings because of this sense that we feel to crave after the divine. Those are attempts by people, I think, to try and do something with those cravings. And so they seek all kinds of avenues. And all the while, God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, his son, a perfect revelation of himself. And we need to see that. 
Well, from the beginning, Christianity and the church has also claimed that one of the ways in which God has revealed himself, besides just through the person of Jesus or the history of Israel, is through a written record of his interaction with the Jews and a written record of his interaction with us since Jesus. He's revealed himself in Jesus the Messiah, and then the Bible records that event. And we want, what we want to do this morning is to examine the reasons why the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, made up of 66 books that include records of oral traditions and literature, written compiled over a period of 1,500 years, are thought to be revelatory, are thought to stand alongside God's interaction with people as a written revelation to us. Now let me say something. I cannot prove to you today the absolute trustworthiness of the Bible when it comes to what it reveals about God. Any more than I can prove to you today that there's a God. Can't prove it. I just can't. God finally leaves the trustworthiness of the Bible as a matter of faith. But just like with the person of God, there is great evidence concerning Scripture and what it says about him on which we can rely. Evidence is evidence. It's, it's just evidence, but it's at least evidence. And just like the existence of God, the trustworthiness of the Bible is, to my mind, a defensible conclusion. Like, I think we can say the Bible's trustworthy. And I'll tell you, I've thought about this issue a lot. In fact, I would say that in the last 40 years of my life, there is probably no issue that I have thought about and read about more. Like, if you were to go to my office right now, you'd find my office walls lined with books. I don't know how many there are there. A thousand? I don't know. I haven't counted them. But the vast majority of those books are designed to say things to me about what Scripture is. They help me understand Scripture. They tell me about Scripture and its writings. They tell me about who the authors were, its history. Almost all of that is oriented toward my understanding of the Bible. And that's why I have those books. And I'm glad about that. It's huge for us to face the Bible in that way, I think. It's a question that I've researched over and over and over and over again. I've read the greatest critics of the Bible. I've read the greatest advocates of the Bible. I've read the Bible, and I love the Bible. And I'm not shy today about saying to you that you should do the same. In fact, I would say, question the Bible. Question it all you want. Ask the hardest questions. The Bible can take it. God can take it. But then... In the midst of your search, after you've read four or five or six or ten books, I don't want you to come to me after reading ten books and tell me that you now have a handle on it all. Instead, what I want you to do is to read a hundred books or to read two hundred books and read the defenders and the critics and try and get a handle on this like you couldn't believe before that you would have a handle on this. I often talk to people who read one or two books, or worse, a few website articles. And then after they read these, they're absolutely convinced they know exactly what the Bible's all about. And I'm not convinced. 
I think that borders actually on being irresponsible. Like the fact is, is that I'm no different from you. I'm just a Christian who decided a long time ago that the Bible was so important that I needed to know an awful lot about it. And so I started reading it and reading it fervently so that I could understand the most I could possibly understand about the Bible and about the Lord from reading the Bible. And it's interesting. Some people think that because I'm in ministry, I have a chance to read the Bible a lot. And I would say that it's exactly the opposite. I would say that because I was so interested in the Bible and all the things that are found there, I decided I wanted to go into ministry. Because the things that are recorded there are just too important for us to ignore. So for 43 years, I've been pouring my life into understanding this book and understanding what it is that God teaches us so that I can know him better and then somehow teach somebody else and disciple a few others and help them understand better what the Bible is as well. And I only pray that somehow the last 43 years have been worth it. I hope that some of the things that I've learned about the Bible can come clear and through to somebody else and so that they too can understand what the Bible is all about. So what I want to do this morning is to just go through the nine points that are on your list today. And I want to talk about nine reasons why I think the Bible is really, really trustworthy. Number one. First, it's because people who say they have experienced God tell us that they wrote down a record of those experiences. And they claim, in the midst of that, to experienced God. What they say is that they've experienced spiritual realities. He did something, or he said something, or he planted something in their minds. And they used all kinds of ways of recording their experiences. They use historical narrative or poetry or prophecies of different types. They use annals of different kings. They use songs and law and records of visions. They use family records and stories, parables, teaching stories, apocalyptic, epistles, letters. The Bible is full of all kinds of records. Writers making claims about what they were doing when they write. But all of it is intended to say to us that they experienced God. And then they tell us what they experienced. I think that's cool. I like the fact that somebody said, I have experienced with God, I had experienced God, and here is what it's like. Now the question is, whether or not the numerous writers of the Bible really experienced something. Or, did they not? Are there reasons to believe what they say, both about God and about their writings? And I think there are. I may be naive, but I think that the general direction of the Christian faith is toward honesty and truthfulness and rational, defensible belief. I also think that there are spiritual realities out there that we can somehow have contact with and experience. And when I read the Bible, what it sounds like to me is that people had contact with God that he communicated himself to them, that he revealed himself to them. And I read them and it just strikes me that they have experienced God. You know, I accept the testimony of others about all kinds of things. Like, Max and Kathy are here today. If I wasn't here, in fact, the teens are not here. Some of the teens may know Max and Kathy. If Max and Kathy are here today and the teens don't know it, then the teens could come and we could say, guess what, Max and Kathy were here. 
there probably isn't one of them who would look at me and say, no, they weren't. You're just making that up. You're lying about Max and Kathy. I'd be, I'd be incredulous. I couldn't believe that they wouldn't believe me. Because I, I, I give testimony all the time about all kinds of things. wouldn't lie about that. And we believe things based on that kind of testimony all the time. And so it just makes sense to me that when the biblical writers start to talk about some of the things they've experienced, that we would at least give them some benefit of the doubt. And we would think to ourselves, maybe they did, in fact, experience some of this stuff. And so number one, there is the experience of God by these people. They say that they experienced it. I actually believe them. And I think there's good reason for doing so. Number two, the writings of the Bible themselves claim to be record of what God said and did in dealing with humankind. In other words, the Bible says this is what we've done. This is what we're doing in recording our experiences. I want you to look in your Bibles. Grab a Bible real quick and look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If somebody has a pew Bible, what page is that up? I didn't look at it. What? Does anybody know? Thank you very much. 723 in the Bible, in the pew Bibles. Luke chapter 1. Now you tell me what this person thinks he's doing. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here's the reason. So that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so the Bible itself is a record of what somebody says God was doing. And in this case, Luke is writing about the things that God has been doing from the very beginning of Jesus being on earth, the story of the gospel, and he says, I have looked at these things carefully. I've talked to eyewitnesses. I've done some investigation here. I want to understand about the truth of these events as they have been told. And what I'm recording for you is exactly, he would say, what happened so that you can understand what it is that God has done. And so if I write a letter to our teens and I say, you need to understand what happened on Sunday morning. Max and Kathy were here. And it was great. And I want you to know. And I write them that note. I don't think any of them are going to think he's writing about nothing. Instead, they're going to think he's writing about some historical event, something that actually happened. And I believe that's exactly what the biblical writers were doing. Number three, the Bible claims that its writings are from God even while they are written by human beings, that they are in fact God-breathed and are therefore fruitful in a variety of of ways. And we won't read it right now. You guys know as well as I do probably 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God breathed. All scripture is inspired. 
It's profitable. It's fruitful for all kinds of things. Teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, showing Christians how it is that they're supposed to live. But it makes this claim that God has given it to us in order that we might be able to correct one another and teach one another and learn from each other and learn from Scripture. Well, I, I bank on that. I'm grateful that God has given us that in the Bible. Number four, people who read the Bible claim to experience God in reading the Bible. They claim that they have experienced revelation of God and from God when they read it. In other words, as we read Scripture, we're claiming that something happens when we read it. And isn't that the case? Some of you have been doing the asking reading. Some of you just read the Bible all the time on your own and probably have been doing so for 30 years yourselves. And isn't it true that there are those moments when you are reading Scripture and maybe something is going on in your life and in the midst of this something, whatever it is, what you need more than anything, what you crave at that moment is a message from God. And you might even think to yourself, Lord, I wish you'd just speak to me. Show me what's on your mind. Show me your will. Help me to understand your direction for me. And you open the Bible. And you begin to read. And he shows you. He does that. We have that kind of experience. Wouldn't you say it's authentic when you have it? Wouldn't you say it's real? Wouldn't you say that God through his spirit uses scripture at that point to do something in you and for you? I would say that he does as well and he's done it countless times, countless times in my life. And it's a testimony to me just how revelatory the Bible is of God. Number five. When evaluated against what we know from history, the Bible rings true. Do you know, this has been challenged a million times. Historians have looked at countless places in the Bible where historical claims are made and where the Bible's accuracy and truthfulness is questioned by someone. And it seems to me that the Bible consistently shows itself to be historically accurate. And that's not just a statement of faith on my part. That's a statement of historical record. The Bible is amazingly accurate. But I would encourage you not to take my word for it. What I'd encourage you to do is instead do that study on your own. Learn about the ancient world and see if the events that the Bible records ring true. If you find something in the Bible that looks like it doesn't quite square with history, I'd love for you to give me a call. Let's look at it together and see if we're reading the Bible well. In fact, I'll make this comment that when the Bible makes a claim concerning a miracle and says it happened, the main reason anyone questions the miracle is not because there's historical evidence against it, because they, but because they simply don't believe in a God who does those kind of things. If there is God, then there are going to be things that supersede and exceed our experiences. 
The resurrection is the best example of all. You know, the only reason that anybody ever says Jesus didn't rise from the dead is because they don't believe that dead men can rise. But if you throw God into the equation and say, he's here, then he can make a dead man live. We just need to bring him into the equation and everything begins to look differently. Number six, the consistency of his witness, of its witness across its various authors, books, and the years it covers speak to the accuracy and value of its witness about God. And let me just cover something here that always gets brought up. There's the question of consistency and contradictions. The Bible's witness is accurate and consistent, I will say, but listen to this. It is accurate and consistent in line with the type of literature that it is and in line with what God wants it to be. And I'm not going to mumble through something here and tell you that we have here an absolutely perfect book in the sense that you will never find an inconsistency. There were human authors involved. There are some places where some obscure fact is found in 1 Kings or 2 Chronicles or something, and the facts don't exactly match up. And intellectual honesty compels me to say that. That's my best opinion. But that doesn't mean for a moment that the Bible isn't consistently true in what it witnesses to us about who God is and what he did and what he said. It is true and accurate on those things. If the Bible in some place says that 40,000 people were killed and in another place it says at the same exact event 30,000 people were killed, it doesn't really matter to me. The truth about God's claims are still true. In fact, when the Bible says 40,000 people are killed in a certain incident, like, do you ever think to yourself, wow, that's amazing that it came out to such a round number? No. I don't think anybody thinks, well, I'm glad it wasn't 40,001 or 40,101 or... Nobody thinks oh, it was probably just 39,999. Like, we don't think in terms of those numbers being all that significant. We don't put all that weight in that round number of 40,000 or 30,000 or 15,000 or 10,000 or whatever. And if the numbers are rounded off like that, then all of a sudden, the minute accuracy of what God is trying to do seems to me to go out a little bit out the window. He apparently isn't so concerned with that. When you read the incidents from the life of Jesus, you'll find when you look at the record in Matthew or Mark or Luke, some incident that went on in the life of Christ, Jesus is quoted as having said something. And many times, in fact, almost all the time, if you look at the exact words of Jesus between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the exact same incidents, when Jesus is quoted, he doesn't say exactly the same thing. And it happens over and over and over again. And I'll let you in on a secret. It's not just in English. 
It's in Greek as well. The problem is not the translation difference. The problem is that sometimes the Bible doesn't record, apparently, exactly the words of Jesus. So what is going on? Are these just guesses or manufactured stories? And I would say by no means. But the records of these events are being told by human authors, and God doesn't take away from, their, from them their humanity when the, they record the events from Christ's life. You know, Mike Coughlin's sitting right back here. Michael, Michael's the most educated man in the room when it comes to the Bible. Except maybe for one. Well, we'd have to talk about that, okay? But if I was to ask Michael, if I was to say, Michael, stand up and tell me something about the transmission of the Gospels and the, uh, the difference between the synoptics and the quotations of Jesus, Michael would, in fact, back up exactly what I'm saying. Now, he and I haven't talked about this, but he can read. He could compare the quotations from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew to, in the same incident, say, the raising of Jairus' daughter and the event in Mark or the, that same event in Luke. He can read. And when it says, and Jesus said, Mike can read that and say, Jesus said these, and then uh, that's what it says in Matthew. But then in Luke, it says this. He can see that. And the rest of us can too. Dustin reads the original languages. If Dustin was here, he would say the same thing. When Jonathan comes, Jonathan's a pretty educated guy as well, he will say the same kind of things. Just ask Jonathan if, when he's here if 2 Kings 24.8, and I'm saying this so that it's on the tape and later people can check this out. If you want to look up 2 Kings 24.8 and compare it to 2 Chronicles 36.9, it's pretty difficult to reconcile those passages. You could look at 1 Kings 15.2 and 2 Chronicles 13.2, and it's pretty hard to reconcile those passages. You can read them for yourself. You can read the Gospels as they're recorded and the quotations from Jesus as they're recorded. Clearly, these were not court-like recordings of testimony where each word was exactly recorded. You know, if, if I was to stand up today and I said, Nora, my granddaughter, was born on January 20th at 10.22 a.m. Or p.m., sorry, p.m. Yes, I got that wrong too. But let's say I'm not off by 12 hours. Let's say I say she's born at 10.22, and then later on, I go home and I look, I go, she was born at 10.32. I lied to the church about those 10 minutes. Is there anybody here who would say, wow, he missed that by 10 minutes on the birth of his granddaughter. I bet he doesn't have a wife named Robin either. I bet his name's not even really Kelly. Well, of course not. And my sense is that those kind of minute details, even in Scripture, don't do anything in terms of calling into question whether or not God has revealed himself. God could have given us a different kind of Bible, but he gave us the one that he gave us. In fact, I'm convinced that he gave us the kind of Bible, the very one that he wanted it to be. And I want to say to him, thank you, God, rather than questioning what he did. He gave us his word, not the word that we might have wanted. 
Instead, he inspired it exactly as he wanted it to be. And that's what we have. And if we try and make it something other than what it really is, we distort it. We corrupt it. We corrupt his word. And so I would say, let's not do that. We have to respect God's word more than that. I encourage you, by the way, not to take my word at all for any of this, but to take his word for it. Go read it for yourselves and find out if the things I'm saying are true. I have too much respect for God's word to ask anything less of you. If you read the incidents from the life of Jesus and find what he and others say to be exactly the same in every case between the Gospels as they share the same incidences, then come and show me. And I'll show you a Bible that hasn't translated the Greek properly. Because that's the way it is. Clearly, God didn't care to give us an exact historical record of what was happening in the life of Jesus down to the most minute detail the way a court recording happens. He just didn't. And that's okay. It's his word, not mine. What he wanted to give us were the stories of the events that would change our lives. Not the exact numbers of how many were killed at some battle or the exact historical record as to who and so, so and so's grandfather is. And we need to read the Bible then for what it is. Number seven. The Bible is used by the church has served to encourage, inspire, warn, teach, challenge, bless, guide, correct, calm, and fulfill those who read it. It has functioned in a purposeful way for the church. And it's done so for thousands of years. And it's therefore worthy to be trusted. Number eight. Because the Bible has served the church like it has, the church has both officially and unofficially declared it scripture. A canon of literature to be held in esteem. In addition to the early church's witness of the significance of, this, uh, of the Bible in his own life and teaching, several early and later church councils and decisions have declared the value of the Bible and their right. Like I think the early church for the first four centuries when it was making claims about what Scripture was, I think they got it absolutely right because Scripture was doing things among them. And then number nine. The Bible's validity has been repeatedly tested throughout Jewish and Christian history, and in my opinion, it has withstood the criticisms very well. I should have said extremely well. I should have said uh, momentously well, magnanimously well. There have been so many critics of Scripture. Montanus and Celsus and Trifo and Spinoza and Lessing and Remaris, Bultmann, Bauer, Strauss, DeBalius, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan in our own day. I have read all these people. And I've read scads more in terms of those who criticize Scripture. John Spung, the Jesus Seminar, Bart Ehrman, yeah, that's the name that everybody wants to talk about these days. Bart Ehrman and his opinions about the Bible. I've read all those guys. None of them in any way caused me to lessen my respect for Scripture. I've been reading them. The critics and the supporters. 
And there just seems to me great reasons to continue to follow and trust the Bible's revelation of God. When ancient Near Eastern history is evaluated, when archaeology is done, when Jewish history is carefully examined, when the Assyrian period is considered and the Babylonian period is considered and the Persian period is considered and the Syrian period is considered and the, you name it, the Ptolemaic period, it doesn't matter. Through all of it, the record of the Bible on all of history just stands up to scrutiny. And so when somebody comes to me and says, well, the Bible's just full of errors. No, it's not. That's hogwash. You can't say that if you really study the scriptures. It's not just full of errors. We have 5,000 ancient manuscripts that give support to what scripture is all about. There's simply no comparison between it and any other literature anywhere. So the last thing. Please, do your own study. And you'd better be honest about what you find. Because here's the thing. We live in an age when any one of you out there, and certainly including our media-savvy young people, can get online and see every question and every answer and every challenge that has ever been made to Scripture. And gone is the day when anybody is just going to listen to me and believe what I say, if we ever had that time. And so we need to do the study ourselves, and we need to know what we're talking about. And I especially encourage the parents to not just rest on what I say or what somebody else says because your kids are going to come to you one of these days and they're going to say, you know, Dad, I know you're a Christian, but what about this in the Bible? And you better have something to say. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you today for Scripture. Thank you for what it is. Thank you for what you've given to us in revealing yourself in the Bible. I absolutely trust that you have offered us your revelatory word on the pages of Scripture. What I pray, God, is that we take it more seriously. Help us to know you better through it. Help us better to, to study and learn and to know what we're talking about when it comes to the Bible. Reveal yourself to us through it. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.